what can we do to better surface the origins of our current inequality? What can we do to dismantle the narratives and the policies that sustain a status quo that is fundamentally unjust? What can we do to bring reparations and healing in a way that actually repairs our relationships to each other? These are important questions and many of us are concerned with them, especially now as it can feel like we are moving backwards. Like we are regressing, uh, like these, uh, ideologies of, uh, separation and supremacy seem to be reasserting themselves. I met, uh, Nicole Cardi, uh, many years back, but I can't say that we got to know each other then. So in many ways, I reconnected with her recently in the context of an effort to bring together culture holders and culture makers and artists to impact public policy. Nicole is currently one of the leaders of an awesome effort called Project Truth, Reconciliation and Reparations. And what impressed me so much about Nicole when I re-met her recently was her commitment to a theory of change that has been arrived at through with significant rigor and with an honest look at what has made mass movements work in the past. And what Nicole and her peers are trying to do is commit themselves to the development of a mass movement that works towards reparations from a popular level, right? So not just this, this current, this current situation in which a lot of the elite, a lot of the educated, liberal educated class can get intellectually behind some of these ideas without it actually truly changing uh, uh, policy and power. What Nicole and her team are doing is an effort to bring a mass, an intersectional mass of the most impacted into the effort to make reparations for harms done in the past and also to heal our democracy in that process. And to do it in a way that is sober and clear, that understands politics and the levers of power. It is uh, an impressive and ambitious idea. It's something that is currently being worked on and it's something I really wanted you to, to learn more about. I have enjoyed my conversations with Nicole. I'm thrilled 
to be able to introduce her to you, especially those of you, specifically those of you that don't know her, but I think those of you that know her will also enjoy this conversation. So here it is. As always, I love to hear back from you. What you get from it? Um, what stuck out? And even more importantly, I like to invite you to find Nicole and uh, find her work and get yourself behind it. For those of you that are just coming onto this podcast for the first time, let me reintroduce myself. My name is Gibran Rivera. I am a teacher, a guide, a coach, and a facilitator. And this podcast is my way of inviting you into a decentralized conversation with remarkable leaders who are devoting their lives to the evolution of consciousness and culture. I am always grateful for the gift of your listening. Enjoy. Nicole Cardi, it is so good to be with you. I want to tell you and the people that are listening that I have met you once before, but that meeting you again years back, I was absolutely blown away by your thought and your power and your knowing and your commitment to a theory of change and the work that you do. And it is such an honor and a privilege to interview you and to have the people that listen to this know you too. Well, I'm very honored to be here. Thank you for inviting me to your podcast space. Mm. Um, we're definitely going to get into the things that we talked about, the theory of change, your approach to the work, what you, what you do, because it is a miracle. Uh, but uh, I usually start the podcast by asking people what might be a difficult question, which is, what is a, what is a belief that you have held that no longer holds the same power of you or that you have hold it no more? And I want to tell you why I asked that question. We are in a time when everybody just seems to be bunkering down on what they know in a way that doesn't make room for new possibilities. And I love to show the audience that the dopest people I know are people who have dared to change their minds and to change beliefs. And so I'm curious what you would share. Yeah, well, I definitely have a lot of possible answers to this question. I have changed my mind a lot over the course of this work. I think the one that I'll share is one that caught me off guard and speaks a little bit to my political evolution. And I'm sure we'll get into my backstory and where I come from and all that. But um, I first joined this work during Occupy Wall Street. I first formally joined this work during Occupy Wall Street. I did a bunch of stuff before that. And, you know, at the time of Occupy Wall Street, I was definitely of a mind of 
I felt like a purist relationship with everything, you know? And so we were very prefigurative. We were very much like, we need to build the new world in this park and we can solve New York City's crises and homeless problems, uh, us, you know, young 20-somethings, because we'll prove them all wrong. We can do it all. And don't come at us with, you know, resources or with uh, politics or anything like that because we're too pure. And um, I was, you know, an anarchist. I was a, you know, horizontalist. I was like all of the kind of trappings of that. Um, and very solidly, you know, anti-capitalist, still that. Um, and I think that through experience, I just got taught lessons about that the hard way. Um, lessons mm-hmm. about what we didn't have the resources to do. Um, you know, I know why people and where it comes from. Um and the belief in the power and a truth on a level about our communities having all the resources that we need and being able to um, solve our problems uh, with everything that we just already have. And I get why that is a popular thing to decide and I get where it comes from. But let me tell you, in that park, we did not have the things that we needed to deal with the problem based on. <laughs> and I think that's actually true for a lot of spaces, which is like, we actually have to admit that there's been a plunder, there's been a stripping of resources from our communities, and we need to build power in order to get those resources back. And we have the resources to build that power, but the you know wealth, the resources, the um, sometimes knowledge that is kept from us, uh, that is something that has been taken and siphoned. And so, um, I definitely switched from, you know, my position of being very purist and very like uh, pure in my relationship to social change and how I went about it and a lot more pragmatic about how we build or sorry, I don't mean to say that that's unpragmatic, but I began to grapple with power and the need to get it to actually get those things that we deserve and need and should have and have been plundered from us. So that led me through, you know, a lot of transformation, um, including transformation to, you know, kind of get over myself when it came to realizing that actually this government has power and we can decide to let it just plunder our resources and not help us, or we could use it as a vehicle to actually redistributing and the things that we need. And that actually opting out of it doesn't do us any favors. So um, it's a little bit of my political journey and I was really ingrained in that first belief, but um, pain and trauma and experience of trying to organize only from that place really pushed me into a different position. So beautiful and so powerful and so courageous because I think you know, and I know that speaking these things aloud in a world and a movement that is still consumed by purity is a risk, you know? Um, But to live in truth is much more important than the risk. One of the ways in which I understand it, the purity part, 
I grew up in a fundamentalist community, church community. And so I know fundamentalism with my scent, mm -hmm. with my eyes, with my being. And uh, I've referred to it as movement fundamentalism. Mm -hmm. And what fundamentalism does is it offers you the easy answer. Mm -hmm. Every time this is this, it, does, it, it takes your discernment away, the discomfort of not knowing, the discomfort of finding something else out, it, it eliminates. And let me tell you what else it does. It does all of those things, but um, it is a trap in a couple of different ways. One, it's a trap because uh, it often provides a, um, if, if it, it provides an excuse to not take responsibility. There's always something more perfect, always something missing, always something that could be better. And if you're waiting for that perfect moment, you will never have what you need to take responsibility for altering the world as you see it. Uh, it also makes takes us off the hook for making tough choices and deciding around what we actually want to do, what we actually want what we're trying to fight for, what's important and what's not important. And I'm not saying throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's a lot of right. really important values that I hold and ways that I yes. try to move my organizing. But um, yeah, but those are choices I'll stand in and I'll defend those choices. Yeah. And I yeah. think leadership is a lot about having, making the courageous choices to say this, not that, and if you have a problem with it, you can talk to me about it, but I'm not gonna move on that and to be grounded in that. Um, and I think when we only adhere to purity, that, that gets right. away from that. That's right, that's exactly right. That's great, I am so in agreement with you. Um, so why don't you tell us a little bit for I, I want to I will get into your theory of change because that's like the first thing that caught like really caught me. But um, your actual work, what you're doing in the world, your life, your, the mission of the organization is one of the most important ones that the country could have. So I would love for you to tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, great. Uh, what I currently do is I'm currently the executive director of Get Free which is a youth-led movement to repair past harms, remove ongoing barriers to inequality, and create a future where freedom and equality are real for all. And so this project came about in um, a moment and of a group of young organizers and activists who noticed all the different things. They were kind of whack-a-mole battling across the country and understood that like at the root of this is a uh, history of this country are our original sins and unless we reckon with them unless we repair them um we're never gonna get out of this and so we came together to really get at the core fundamental you know genocide uh slavery core sins of this country and to popularize a clarity that repairing these fundamental orders that 
were decisions by people to justify exploitation is actually the key for us unleashing a future in which um, we can thrive and we're equal and we are all recognizing our full humanity. So that is the overall uh, prerogative of Get Free. And our goal is to make that sense, that understanding, the fusion of you know equality and freedom, which are deeply American values uh, with you know repair as common sense, both in the public and in politics. That's beautiful. Can you um, help me understand, help us understand a little bit more what we mean by repair? Well, I can tell you that my, one of my first interpretations is literally reparations, like pay black people back for the work that they did to build the country, like just like give them the money that like they are owed. Yeah, you know? and that's very fundamental. I mean, reparations is our framework, right? And this shouldn't be uh, like controversial, like idea, right? What it really is, is acknowledging that there have been purposeful, discriminatory, exploitative systems that, you know, created uh, lies and laws to dehumanize people. And all reparations are is reversing the impact of those lies and laws. And so when we think about reparations, we really have a five-part understanding of it. And this is in concert with the UN's definition of reparations. And I hope I get everything right, because sometimes I forget. But um, it's not just monetary compensation, but it, that is part of it, right? Compensation for lost benefit, for lost opportunities, wealth um, uh, for exclusion, uh, retro restitution. And so an actual like restoring of full citizenship that would look like voting rights that would look like full enshrinement of equality um, in the law uh healing self-explanatory there's a lot of damage for all people that are needed in order to heal and be healed in the wake of this these crimes against humanity um uh restitution compensation healing uh, one is satisfaction, and what that basically is is telling the truth, right? Having a true accounting of history. You know, they don't gloss over the Holocaust in Germany, and yet we're here in America pretending slavery was good for Black people, right? Like that means we haven't actually gone through satisfaction. And then finally, and I think this is actually one of the most important and transformative qualities of reparations is non-repeat. And what that means is actually creating the policies that enshrine this will never happen again. What does that mean? That's like, that's democracy. That's actually putting in protections against this dehumanization, against this exploitation. Um, and, you know, racial capitalism is at the heart of so many of the problems that we have in this country. Uh, so this is really our attempt to, like, create a solution for that, uh, those design systems, explain where they came from. And explain what we all have to benefit from and gain when we undo them through our preparations. Ashe. Ashe, may it be so. May it be so. May the people listening know to support this, to find their way to you and support it. And I think one thing I'll just say is one thing that's been really helpful in our framing, um, because we had a bunch of research around like, what are the blocks around operations? What keeps people from um, understanding them. 
And one thing that we found is that people think reparations are all about the long ago past, then, you know, not now, certainly, maybe in the 60s, but certainly not now. And what we really understand reparations are is an investment in the future, right? We actually can't Mm -hmm. create an equal society without reparations. And this stuff is not super old. This stuff is like with us today still. It shapes our police killings. It shapes our criminal justice system. Um, My father grew up during Jim Crow. That's my father. (laughs) Like that is one generation, right? This is not super removed. Um, So this is also and shapes our world around us. But the reason to repair is really not just about the past, but is about the future that we can make. And it's really on us if like, you know, to not actually make reparations means what are we doing? We're damning generations of black people, poor people to be trapped in poverty. And that's on us, actually. And so that is kind of the crisis we're trying to bring to the fore around understanding that we didn't create these rules really no one alive did, but we're actually choosing to either perpetuate them or disrupt them. And that's on us. And so what are we going to do? That's wonderful. That is so potent. I, uh, I want to share that I live, I have a beautiful, beautiful home in the hood. I live in the hood. And I, I, 90% of the time love living in the hood. There's some there's some ratchet stuff that I could do without, but generally speaking, it's just dope, you know? But I say it because the street, my street ends on Washington Street in Dorchester. And so we are west of Washington. And then once you cross east of Washington, the neighborhood is... gorgeous it has trees it has gorgeous victorian houses it's literally washington street was the red line that the banks drew Mm -hmm. after segregation to keep us segregated right and it's it's just so obvious like i go for my daily walks i cross the street because i want to walk around the front the trees you know um so yeah, it's like it's real. Yes, it's right. Now. And it's like, and you know, you look at what's happening across the country. All this intentional effort to try to erase American history, suppress this knowledge. Why? Because it's so explanatory for why our world is the way that it is. And when you look at who is responsible for you know passing the anti-CRT bills and trying to whitewash history. It's the same people who are benefiting from that exploitation, benefiting from the disempowerment. And they don't want us to know the information that so clearly explains why things are how they are. They'd rather have us feeding and believing in some myth of meritocracy. And, you know, I think of meritocracy and like, I feel like a really easy way to sort of undermine meritocracy is like, oh yeah, America is a meritocracy starting when? When did American meritocracy start? Certainly not in slavery, certainly not in redlining. Like when was the moment when you can just aspire and that would be the full, you know, ability, you could, you, where you were was only a result of how much you tried. Like name the moment in history when that began. And you can't, right? Just a clear analysis of history tells you that that's never been true. And so 
you know, these are the fundamental narratives we have to disrupt in order to um, create a story that actually points to the thing that needs to happen, which is repair. Ashe, Ashe, that is the truth. That is the truth. Um, there's something else. So when I, I do a lot of healing work, right, and a lot of it includes helping the person give up the idea that they have of themselves mm -hmm. in order to become themselves. And that's really yeah. hard. And so these folk have con their entire identity revolves around this lie. They obviously want the power and the benefit, but it's deeper. It's like how they derive meaning, how they say, how they come to understand themselves as being part of the most powerful country in the world. That's like, it's a, it's an identity. It's a core, it's core to their meaning making. I am, I always say, you know, we often have repeated in movement spaces. I think a lot of the left, maybe the democratic left, the Democrats or something, is like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So if you if you make sure people are fed, you know, and so we wrote there was a famous book a while back called "What's the Matter with Kansas?" Like, why would they vote against their economic self-interest? And that hierarchy of needs is not as linear. People need wow. meaning, right? And so part of what we need to do is like, offer an alternative meaning, an alternative way, because it, they will not give up yeah. meaning. A story, right? right? Like an alternative place where they can belong. I, I don't remember yeah. who said this or where I heard this, but um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If that was actually true, that you had to like, fulfill your most basic needs and then you climb up and then you like eventually get to belonging and there wouldn't be starving artists you know like actually right. the top needs take priority and then the other ones you know they can shift um and when you're thinking about an identity that creates belonging for people which has been created in order to create a sense of shared benefit and shared belonging which is another uh like function of white supremacy, right? Because white supremacy does not just exist to exploit black people, people of color, to dehumanize us. It also exists to um, invite poor white people who do not benefit from these systems into an alliance with the wealthy few yeah. who've been crafting these systems of lies in the first place. And so yeah. we have to actually tell a story that um, creates that division between uh, within whiteness, as far as explaining the purpose of, you know, that invented identity, right? Because like, if you even look back historically, um, you know, people weren't white when they came to the United States, they were English or French or Irish. And then they created a mass moving modifier of whiteness in order to like bolster their numbers and to justify exploitation. And so there's yeah. a lot of uh, like, there's a lot of 
clarity and just learning the actual history of what happened and why that explains what is so entrenched about this and also the ways we can sort of disentangle and explain the origins for these ideas and how they're actually functioning to hurt most white people in this country. Yeah, that's right. It's reminding me of a four part series on Netflix that I just finished watching that blew me away. It's called Chimp Empire. Mm. And it goes deep into the chimps and, you know, like they have, they're extremely territorial. They cannot be friends with the chimps around them. And status is everything. Yeah. And uh, we come from that. And so we are obsessed with status, consciously or not. And so part of what this does is I can be at the bottom of the white pile, yeah, right. but I still have more status. Yeah. You know, what's interesting yeah. about monkeys is that I think obviously our closest, uh, you know, evolutionary counterpoints are chimpanzees, but bonobos are also quite, you know what I'm yes. saying? Yes. they're all about you know they have a lot of sex <laughs> mm-hmm. like they just are oriented their society is oriented differently it's oriented around children it's oriented around you know like the cohesion of the community and so you know i think that that's useful because you know we have a way of explaining what we don't often know when we look at history is that history is interpreted and given to us within the dominant frameworks of the era. And so we were like yeah. doing research on, you know, man at the time, like at the dawn of man, um, we're like, oh yeah, cave men. And then cave women were gatherers and cave men were hunters. And it's like, actually that is just retrofitted, like modern ideas of right. like gender roles onto a society that didn't have that at all, actually. That's and right. so, the thing that's like we try to root ourselves in is there's always choices that are getting made. And the important thing yeah. is why are they getting made? You know, it's not an accident that like they have aligned power amongst a wealthy white few men, right? They yeah. are both creating laws to forge these ideas, forge ideas of whiteness, forge ideas of like maleness and forge justification for control for their own power. They're not always they're not always there in society beforehand. They have to actually like harness them and create justification for them. And over time, justification has shifted. The beginning it was the Bible, and then we had the scientific age, and then they had fake science, you know, like phrenology. Like they used the same thing to justify why black people were, first of all, a different race. No. And like, and women were also like inferior to white. Men. Yeah. And so the the justification shifts and shifts, but it's all about power. Yeah. And so understanding that That's it's all weird. about power at the end for these people, it's the origin story that I think we're really missing around. That's right. That's right. No, we are. Um, we are literally living in the in the next gilded age. Mm-hmm. Like, this is the time over any other time when the wealthy are keeping and grabbing most of the pie by a lot by a lot like like a hundred people will have half of the wealth on earth 
And even the way we talk sure. about, like, you know, in recent years, we've talked a lot more about the racial wealth gap. And I think that's important. And I think it's also confusing because um, within the racial wealth gap is just the general wealth gap. And if you've right. seen, and the reason why the racial wealth gap is so extreme is because, well, the people at the very tippy top are usually white. But they're bringing the like wealth of all white people way up from where it actually should be. And there's a clear benefit of you know, the GI Bill not being redlined, obviously advantages which others were excluded from that like created and fostered white wealth. That definitely happened. But there's a whole other conversation that we're missing about the gap between like average median white wealth and the like outrageous harnessing of wealth amongst like the top hundred families, most of whom are white, you know? And so, yeah, we, it's tricky because we're not, we don't have good language around this stuff. Yeah. 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 And I feel like that's, that's just like, I just feel very strongly that you're just leaning into it. You're just sorting it out. You're just finding, you know, you're researching, you're finding the way to speak of it. And, um, it's beautiful work, important work. I would love to hear about your theory of change, which you're so clearly committed to. I want to say before you start that I feel that we have different theories of change, but I feel like they're complementary. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just wanted to say that and a welcome, like I invite people to listen mm-hmm. to like your analysis to like how you think we're going to get there, what it is that needs to yeah. happen. So I'll speak a little bit about where my theory of change is grounded in. And so Please. my, as I mentioned earlier, I first got involved in like, the more formal left through Occupy Wall Street when I was like 23. And um, I have been part of community-based organizations. I've been part of like tutoring, um, like efforts. I have been part of like a new formation of SDS, like radical, political, but like long, long meetings and like democracy, if you call like long meetings when you talk about Marx, democracy. <laughs> I've, done, I've done stuff. I wasn't a complete newbie. I had done, I'd been in the left before. Occupy was the first thing I was ever a part of that felt like it was kind of working. Like I had never been part of anything that actually felt like it was working on a large scale. Maybe like, you know, stoplight organizing and things like that. Sure. But like nothing on a large scale. And Global. global, global and like brought capitalism into the fore in a way that had not been done in my lifetime and gave everybody new language, which we're still using right now, about like 1%, 99%, like that is all, that's all from Occupy. Thank you for the gift of your attention. If there's something here that resonates for you, something that feels true and good, Think about a friend that you could share it with. We curate for each other. And that's the only way the good stuff spreads. Even young activists who got activated in like 2020 or even 2014 are like, oh, well, 1%, 99%, that's so obvious. 
I'm like, no, it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't in 2010. It, like we made that obvious. And so, um, so I went there and I was like, wow, something, I mean, Akiha was amazing, transformational, and also like one of the most toxic organizing environments I've ever been in my entire life by an easy margin. Um, just manipulation, you know, I'm not gonna get into all that, but I was like, something here is working. What is working here? And so I became really dedicated to figuring out like what of the infrastructure of what happened here is functioning, what's working, what's making us able to transform the weather. And I went off in search of answers about like what worked during Occupy. And that journey led me to study with James Lawson, who was one of the architects of the Nashville sit-in campaign, which desegregated Nashville in the 60s, um, and led me into synthesizing and working with folks who built momentum training around just kind of like, what are the common elements here that actually make social movements work. And so we began to like synthesize what are the what are the shared fundamentals here actually. Um, and we got harnessed into a you know social view of power, people power, right? Like actually if you want to change the weather, if you want to change how society thinks about a problem so that we can actually get the things we need other than trying to fight for the things that we can get. Um, like you have to engage masses of people. You have to think about scale. You have to think about mass engagement. You have to build structures that actually help you absorb um, people in really large numbers. And that was part of what happened in Occupy was we like had a front door, people could come in, get oriented, um, be part of joining this conversation. That's what happened with well. Um, and that was the foundation for, um, you know, that, actually then change the conversations that were happening in society, right? You have uh, the first, you know, the Ferguson uprisings and the immediate aftermath of that, the emergence of Black Lives Matter. And then two years later, you get Beyonce at the Super Bowl wearing, you know, a Black Panther beret. Like Beyonce before that was not gonna do that. Beyonce after that did that. And so there was a really clear relationship between power, people doing things and the translation that funnels up through culture as um, one clear part of what needed to happen. And so um, we can reduce that into, you know, people power and then narrative power, right? Like how do you create urgency around your issues? How do you bring your issues into the fore? How do you use direct action to really dramatize, it's like, you know, Martin Luther King's word, dramatize the struggles that we don't see otherwise, you know, like we are so used to in society how do we dramatize and problematize what is already there in a way where we want to take new action on it as a society? And that was really functional during the civil rights era, right? Like the lunch counter sit-ins, even in Nashville, like segregating town, black people in Nashville at the time of the sit-ins were like, yeah, segregation is gonna be here forever. I don't know what you're doing. Like you guys can do whatever you want. Um, we're not hanging out with you because like, this is just, this is the like way that, this is the water we're swimming in. You know, this is what always yeah. will be. And it took an agitation in direct action that was able to like dramatize the violence of segregation just by sitting at a bunch of counters. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't just that action, it was the infrastructure around it to begin to organize the community who then got agitated when they saw this action, who then wanted to plug in and that was how they built power. 
So suddenly the conversation is shifting. Um, doesn't end there because what they're ultimately able to do is shift that power into you know, economic power and then political power in order to win legislation. And so what I've reduced that to is sort of a trifecta sort of, not linear, but like sequential understanding of how to create transformational change, which starts with people power, starts with dramatizing the issue, starts with getting people involved and creating structures to show society the problems that we need to deal with and to create urgency around the problems in our world that we maybe don't feel urgency around all the time. Um, and then that really transits into narrative power, into how we are understanding our world and how we are figuring out what's urgent, what needs to be acted upon and who we are in relationship to these problems. And then once that has you know, proliferated a mass amount of the public, then it's a voting issue. Then it's an issue that becomes a political priority. And so you harness those opinions, you harness that urgency into creating uh, you know, transformative change and voting priorities and then harness really one political party in order to move your agenda. And the thing that I'll say when I began to study this and look into this is that social movements transforming urgency and then harnessing political party to like enact their agenda is the way, period, that transformational change has happened in this country. That's what happened during the abolitionist movement. That's what happened during the civil rights movement. That's what happened during the progressive movement. Um, that's happened during the new right movement. You know, that is uh -huh. actually the recipe in my mind um, that I've been inside. That is, well, historically that's the recipe, right? And like that replicating that, thinking about that scale, thinking about those numbers, and then using that to impact how people understand society and then harnessing that through a party. And it's one party, it's not two parties, it's not a third party, it's <laughs> one of the two parties. Um, that is how uh, something called you know, entrenchment happens um, and uh, political realignment happens, right? Where the party is the vehicle mm -hmm. for your new agenda that the world agrees with you with. And so, Incredible. so yeah. That that's where it landed after many yeah. years of analysis and study. Yeah, it's so it's so good for you to say it. It's good, so good for say to say it boldly. You are saying things that are I know for a fact not welcomed in many spaces that call themselves left, and it's just so good for you to like dare to say it and dare to work on it. And my Question. Next question is, how's it going? How's it going? Um, like my project? Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, we just launched like a month ago. And so, okay. um, but we've been harnessing this, you know, and we built our project knowing that actually right now there's about to be a generational shift in the American electorate. So um, boomers share of the population is declining. The great generation is. Yeah swiftly dying off. And millennials and Gen Z are actually already the biggest, the, the most numerous generation in America. We're the most diverse and we're the most numerous, right? And so in these next few elections, um, our priorities should, uh, if we flex our power, be the priorities that politicians want to tap into in order to win. We aren't harnessing our power that way. 
we're not being looked at in that way quite yet, but we have the power to make them start to look at us. So that's part of the strategy that we built our, our overall kind of campaign into. Um, that's not answering your question. What I'll say is, um, so we started, in, we kind of came fully online on June 1st. Um, we've been, we trained up a handful of leaders and just last week we mobilized our first set of leaders from all over the country to DC to really take bold action and um, sort of create a real choice point around what is going on in this country and the future of this country in response to the Supreme Court decisions, but also all of the legislature that's going on across the country to take us back, take away hard-won gains, take away freedoms, and really re-entrench the same white supremacy uh, that we've mm-hmm. been talking about this whole time, right? Like this is the last mm-hmm. stitch, ditch effort to like calcify that for another generation. Why? Because they see our generation in the wings and they see that we're coming. So they want to lock us out of power in this moment while they still kind yeah. of have it. So we mobilized people there. Uh, we had a really powerful action um, and really like put it to our electeds that the future is outside. We are standing for equality, making equality and freedom real and doing the repair to make that true. Um, and then there's also this faction that's been with us historically, who's been trying to entrench white supremacy and patriarchy to benefit themselves. Which side are you on? Are you with the future or are you with the faction? And so we took that question to our electeds. We got a couple of folks signing on. Um, and our next stage is to take that message across the country during August recess. And so we're holding our pledge and we're using the backdrop of SCOTUS and the Supreme Court, but also like all of these bills we're seeing passed around the country as a backdrop to put people on the line for standing, pledging to stand with our generation or to reveal themselves as part of this faction, which people are. Um, and so that's our next step. And we've grown, you know, there were some of us who built this project and then we recruited like a small group of five in order to help launch this mobilization, which we had like 30 people. Now we're about to have like 15 or so actions across the country. And then we're gonna double down yeah. and those will all have people and then we'll do trainings in order to grow our base because it's all about growing our base, um, this space. So, you know, it seems small, but no, it's really yeah, like meeting the moment and to go from like three to five to, you know, a hundred, hopefully pretty soon, is yeah. like uh, pretty good. And- uh, yeah. Hope we can keep it going, and we will keep it going. But that's what we're looking for. So, yeah. so yeah. I think it's going well. We're we're really confident around. I'm going to say something obnoxious, and this I'm just going to preface it in this. But I feel like I have a pretty good sense around knowing which way the wind is blowing and where the weather is going to be going, and I'm very confident that like this, uh, the kind of framework of the election, partly because of our effort, but also because it's just what's unwinding around a crossroads in the country. This will be the frame of the election in 2024, right? Like this is where we're going. It's really clear that MAGA Republicans are on one and they're like trying to re-entrench and protect white supremacy and their own power. And Biden's already running on freedom. What does that freedom mean? Who knows, but he's running on it, right? And so to just deepen that and clarify, this is not a new 
challenge. It's an old challenge and really ask ourselves, the country, which way we're going to go. That's going to be the family election and we're going to fit right into it um, in really demanding Democrats make freedom real uh, by the barriers that exist and holding them accountable to our generation and to our votes um, in order to make that more than just a thing they say, but to put them in a relationship with our generation in which we can hold them accountable. So, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful, so good. I want to say two things. The first is when you said that you have a sense uh, and a confidence, I got uh, goosebumps, which is how I know something true is being spoken. So I just want to affirm that. And uh, I think the other one is, I had a question. Actually, no, before I forget, um, I will write it on the on the release of the of the podcast. But for those of us that get it, don't get it through my newsletter, can you say your website? Like, what is your web address? Yeah, our website is getfreetogether, all one word, dot org. Great. And is there a don't uh, make a donation button on yes, that website? Yes, there is. And we need support in order to actually grow this movement to scale and to move into our next phases. Um, you know, we're out here trying to organize like BIPOC young people and uh, not a lot of people are organizing at all right now. And we have just an amazing group of leaders who should be able to do this work and to be able to like organize their peers and classmates. And so, um, yeah, donations are like, if you believe we're in a crossroads moment in this country, give to get free because uh, like sure. we are. And I want to I want to say one thing further about that, which is it was the Obama election that brought the power of small donors into politics. Before that, it was just the politicians with the rich. Yeah. And today they measure like the media measures the power of a campaign by how many small donors they have. So I want to tell the people listening whatever amount you have, and some of you have, some of you have a lot, and some of you have a little, give to this, support this. It will be, this will be more free if it is free from institutional mm. power. Not that you don't need it, not that you won't take the foundation grants, but the more donors are willing to give, are willing to give a monthly mm. gift. This is important. And so I'm just going to speak into my audience directly about really it. Like find the generosity. Yeah. I want to ask you another question about your thought. And then I want to get into, then I want to share a book kind of going back to something you were saying earlier. Um, but, uh, you have said something quite provocative yeah. uh, in the context that we met. And I have, um, you know, some of my most exciting clients are like a really centering culture, right? That's kind of defining mm -hmm. uh, 
the future. But you said, and I was moved by it, even if it's like a challenge to some of the work of the people I'm doing, that it's actually the other way around, that the culture follows movement, that it is an expression mm-hmm. of movement and new thought. And so I'd love for you for you to, to speak something about that. Yeah, and it's a, it's a virtuous circle. Um, but yeah. if I was to be asked around, if you want to do culture change, what do you invest in? Artists who are making art or movement in order to like popularize a new idea? Um, I would say movement. I would say people taking action, direct action especially, in order to transform and dramatize and clarify issues in new ways to new people. And um, I think the evidence is pretty clear on this, you know, like even just looking at history, um, look at the 60s, right? You have like Joan Baez and Bob Dylan and all of these people that I grew up understanding to be like movement folk singers and movement artists and things. But all of that music was like coming up in a moment of action, of people already moving. Like they went to Montgomery, they went and joined the protests. They were given more space to be accepted and adopted um, because the ideas were already put in the air by courageous action that was happening. You know, Bob Dylan got inspired by, you know, the lunch counter sit-ins and things like that. And so I just think like, that is the directionality uh, that it more goes and that actually, you know, think about even like how many black films and BIPOC films got greenlit after 2020, right? Like that came after, think about how many, I have a friend who's a cinematographer, how many jobs he got put on (laughs) after 2020. And I was like, you should thank me because like, is that's from movement movement did that and now you get to like actually have more space more resources more focus to make the art to do the art to like take it to the next level but that was all unlocked because of people taking action for free you know because they cared about something to really magnify the problems that we're in and yeah i just think what we say something at momentum which i hold on to and that's uh, momentum creates alignment. So yeah. you run out and you do something and people come with you and resources unlock and they unleash. You know, we also saw this go away once the streets emptied in 2020. But like all of that new energy came after movement. And um, that is where I would put my money. Yeah, yeah. No, and uh, you gave the, you already talked about Beyonce, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. And I think about my my beloved like friend, like a true true friend of mine, Fabiana Rodriguez, the artist. And uh, when I think of her art and her expression, so much of it comes from deep within her, but it is an expression of movement. It, it just it just is, you know, it just is. Um. So actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you and the listeners to be indulgent with me for a second 
because I want to find the, the exact name of a book that reminds me of something that you said about the hunter-gatherers and the stories that we tell. And it's called The Dawn of Everything mm. by the late David Grieber. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You might have known for uh, Occupy. And David Wengro. Uh, and it is a beautiful, big tome. Challenging. Challenging. The mythology that we have around like the pure human in their natural state in their idyllic society like it's just a wonderful tome to support what you're mm -hmm. saying i've heard that I book like, really recommended to me and yeah, i feel like his yeah. basic argument is like actually there's like all these different ideas floating around all the time <laughs> like never just right. one there's always like a bajillion different ways of doing things yeah yeah yeah, it just just changes this this story of progression from hunter gatherer to agriculture to industrialism. It's a it's a different thing and not linear at all. Yeah, at all, at all, at all. Um, yeah, just I just wanted to bring that in. I also wanted to say back to that conversation. I often say, you know, you're Darwin. You're studying evolution. You're living in a world of dominance. And so what you see is dominance win, right? Like that's kind of the way you're looking at it. And uh, it's not untrue that there's some truth to that. But the other thing that we know about evolution is that we grow in empathy and collaboration. Mm -hmm. That's what makes all species stronger. So that's it. And that, that actually evolving too, that we, we can grow towards that. So I just uh, wanted to, again, affirm what you're saying. And I think like, I mean, I'm like reaching back to my like AP bio knowledge, you know, but like, um, I, you know, dominance is one way of thinking about evolution, right? But like, you know, they used to think that evolution was just linear and like was evolved, mm -hmm. kind of like also the projection of like evolution of economies and societies, like just a straight line, a right. foretold thing. Um, and then there was a theory that came out after Darwin um, that's called punctuated equilibrium. And so what that was talking about was that actually things would just be at stasis for a long time and chilling. And then like mm -hmm. something would happen, which would inspire a whole like new leg of evolution and generation. And it was just about environments changing and people changing to them. And that it wasn't necessarily like one thing tackled another then got better, but like, it's kind of more, less about dominance and more about like collaboration with the environment right and when we see these big changes happen it's like the things that went out are the new inventions and the things that like actually break the molds that um previously were dominant and there's a massive evolution and so like that's another way of thinking about um that's beautiful that's right i'm gonna take a 
a left turn here as we as we come close to to our time we have a, about three questions left two of which i ask all of them i ask every time i would love to hear i know how you got politicized i know about occupy i know what happened before i'd love to know a little bit more about your upbringing about what what like where do you who who do you come from? Who are your people? How did you yeah, grow up? I that's a great question because it's different than how I was politicized, but it's always been there. And I've recently come back around to understanding exactly where I come from and as a reason for why I was politicized. Um, the story that I tell about this is, you know, I I was deep into my work in movement for Black Lives before I had even done and run the numbers on my own family <laughs> around like, oh wait, my dad was born in 1945. Like he grew up in Tennessee and in Georgia, like realizing how near um, Jim Crow was to my life and how possible my life was because of kinds of civil rights movement. Um, so I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and my dad also grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. And, um, my his family uh moved there from canada when he was four years old because his dad couldn't get a like he's a preacher and he couldn't get a parish in nova scotia um i later learned that i was like wait there aren't black people in canada where did they come from <laughs> you know and my dad's my dad's dad's line came from the caribbean but my dad's mom's line uh caribbean. yeah a tiny island called Anguilla. That's where my mom is from too, actually. Yeah. So lots of my family stems back from this tiny island in the Caribbean called Anguilla, which is like three and a half miles by seven miles. And my mom is like the second of 12 and half of my aunts and uncles still live there. And um, I go there, they know my face. They like, it's a place of true, deep and utmost belonging. Um, and my grandmother, though, her family uh, was from Nova Scotia, but via America. And so they were enslaved in America. And they actually moved up to Nova Scotia. They were relocated by the British during the War of 1812. And during the War of 1812, enslaved people joined with the British and fought against the United States. And then they were relocated to Jamaica and then others to Nova Scotia. And my ancestors were part of those who like burnt down part of the capital actually, and then uh, went to Nova Scotia um, and were farmers there for a number of years. And I grew up with the story that like my dad's from Canada, my mom's from Anguilla. I'm a first generation immigrant, but I ran the numbers and both sides of my family just like, have been in the United States for what is now the United States for like hundreds and hundreds of years. Even my mom, like her people went down, they were like, you know, part of her ancestry was like, they were enslavers who left Virginia after the mm. Civil War ended and like hung out in the Caribbean and like intermarried with black people who were down there, you know? like wow. And so like the roots are just so deep in this country. Yeah. And I, like many radicals and many purists, was like, 
fuck this country. And yeah, fuck this country for a lot of different reasons, you know, um, especially for all the ways that it has stood up and created hierarchy and been a force for bad. But like, I recently, and by recently, I mean, like, from like 2015 onward, really came around to see all the work that had happened here in America yeah. that had made it actually a place for a multiracial society and how much further along that journey it was than almost anywhere else in the world. And I was like, oh, wow. And we have part of our national story, this like overcoming of uh, this discrimination, how helpful for anything that happens in the future. And so I really came around on my uh, understanding of like, not ever erasing all the all the ill of capitalism, imperialism, that's all still there, but like seeing the potential and seeing how people have harnessed that potential um, and how my ancestors harnessed that potential in the civil rights movement and like were preachers, you know, in civil rights movement leading marches and things um, and feel a deep grounding, surprisingly, yep. <laughs> to this country. It would have shocked me, would have shocked 15 year old me, mm -hmm. but here I am. Yeah. For some reason, fighting for the future of this country. Uh, yeah, I got another bit of goosebumps here. Um, I come from the uh, we call it the last colony on Earth, you know. Uh -huh. And uh, a quick note about that: I often think of the Caribbean as the heart of Africa outside yeah. of Africa, you know. And uh, even with that, you know, growing up a nationalist, growing up wanting independence, growing up. Like so much in my power changed when I was like, I'm an American citizen. I am a citizen of the most powerful country in the world. Yeah. What do you think about it? I you just, know, like, it's like, it's like, um, this is what like, like Star Wars and especially like my kid watched the Clone Wars and Bell Hooks told us, you know, like the darkness is inside each of mm -hmm. us. It is so simplistic uh, to just make the nation bad and to throw shade at it and not, like, you see the whole thing, you see the horror, but to miss out on the project of democracy, that is the aspirational, uncompleted project that has been held here is a mistake. It's, it's wrong. It will not yeah. help you. It won't help anyone in the world, actually. Yeah. You know, like yeah. there's a reason why people look to the civil rights movement and, you know, that deepening of democracy across the world. You know, like that is a movement of inspiration from every corner for every oppressed people across the world, you know, and that happened here. And so, like, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? Like, even even in like you know the reconstruction times i'm gonna i can go on in history forever you know but like the idea that this country in a moment of clairvoyance was like actually anyone who's born here gets full citizenship unparalleled at the time that happened, right like and still like what are they trying to destroy today birthright citizenship because they don't like that but yeah. that was like that that policy is like a, such a beautiful aspirational reality of this country 
that wasn't even replicated anywhere else in the Western world until like much, much more recently. Uh, and, in, and in many European places, it's still not true. It's, in the Dominican Republic, it's not true. Like, it's a, it's a miracle. And it's just, it's, yeah, it's, it just seems so important. I want to recommend to, to listeners who might be interested, I just listened to an interview of Tom Hanks in the Ezra Klein show. And he's just like, very white, for uh -huh. sure. But uh, like, he sees the country's good and he not maybe as clearly as you and I, but he sees the country's harms. And I just think, I just thought that that was a really healthy, it was a white perspective. It's two white guys talking, but it is, uh, I found it, I found it a bomb to hear his clarity on it. And we just have a, a few minutes here left. I want to ask you, if you are willing mm -hmm. to do a little time traveling. Sure. And, and what I mean by that is to, to forward yourself 20 years from now, which is what at least used to be what a generation was. And I don't want you to tell me who she is. I want you to notice that she has attained some things and failed at others. She has more wisdom. And then I want to invite you to have her come back to you now and speak to you. And when you're ready, I'd love to hear what she's telling you. Hmm. You need to know. Very, very deep. Um... I think she would tell me that it's okay to be scared mm -hmm. and that you're right to not let that prevent you from trying. I see. Oof. Goosebumps again. <laughs> Good medicine. Good to learn from your elder self. The The last question I ask, and it's a commitment that I have, I, uh, I wrote something called, I run something called the Better Men Project. Mm. And, you know, post, like, obviously patriarchy has been here forever, but post me too, like, it was just, it's just been exposed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, unhidden and I have a great concern with the state of mm -hmm. men I'm doing my best to be a better man myself and so when I'm before a powerful brilliant woman I'd like to ask what should men do from your perspective um Huh. I think men should join the fight. Men should um, understand how dangerous it is to do this work as a woman. 
um, and do and hold a role in supporting people in their lives who are not men uh, to take leadership, share leadership, and hopefully we can get free together. Hmm. Perfect. Thank you. It's a gift. No. Um, well, we're about to close. Is there anything in your heart, mind, any information you want to give, anything you want to hear, make sure people hear? I think I've talked at length. Um, thank you for the okay. space. It's been nice to go deep and go broad and go forward and just kind of round, roll around and ruminate uh, in all of the yeah. things. I hope this is useful to people. Um, yeah. And I I stand I stand in in my discernment around. I say, I say, I say. I want you to know that it has been an absolute delight to be in your presence and company. And uh, I already have, obviously I'll go to my whole audience, but I already wrote a number of specific names that I will forward it to directly mm. because I know they will receive it. Oh, well. amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Signal versus noise. There's so much competing for our attention. And I am so glad that you stayed with us through the end of the podcast. It should mean that you're finding something meaningful here. Hopefully, something worth sharing. And so I'm asking again that you think of somebody who would be touched by this conversation. Who wants to be a part of it some way. It is a decentralized conversation. It is a way in which we're changing ourselves by leaning in towards each other in places like this and in the exchange of these ideas. So who's a person or two that will be specially moved by what you've heard here today? Send them a text, an email. Let them know we're here. We're not trying to reach everybody, but we want to reach the right people. We want to keep having this decentralized conversation. We want to keep working on getting right to the edge of the evolution of consciousness and culture to see what we find here together. Thank you again for being a part of this. Liking the podcast helps. Subscribing is definitely a good thing. Feedback is always welcomed. Stay in touch. <laughs>